Welcome to another episode of the Herbert Smith Freehills Class Action Fireside podcast series. My name is Christine Tran and I'm a Class Actions Defence Specialist. Um, in today's episode, we are going to talk about cyber class actions. It's a nascent area of class action practice in Australia, and it's an interesting emerging species of class action litigation as it involves an intersection of consumer claims, shareholder claims and regulatory actions. And in this area, we have a representative complaint regime that's overseen by the Australian Privacy Regulator. So it gives rise to um, uh, both um, the use of that regime, but also parallel regulatory investigation risks. So just by way of example, and just to set the scene, um, for a corporate that's experienced a cyber attack last year, in the aftermath of that incident, at least as, as at the date of this recording, we have had five class actions filed against that corporate. One was a class action style complaint filed with the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner. There's been two competing consumer class actions filed in the federal court and two competing shareholder class actions filed in the Victorian Supreme Court. So it's just um, incredible complexities um, in, in this space. Now, with that overview, I'm very pleased to introduce my colleagues and our podcast participants for today. So we have with us Christine Wong, who's a partner in our disputes practice with a particular focus on data breach investigations and contentious matters. And we also have Brendan Donoghue, a senior associate in our disputes team, um, specialising in contentious regulatory and cyber matters. Um, so, Christine, I might throw to you first, because I, you know, we've been talking about cyber risks in this space for such a long time and it's to the point where that risk is so pervasive it's really a question of when not if a data breach is going to arise so I was, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what's been happening in the space. Sure Chris and thank you for setting that scene so effectively um, because I think it really does demonstrate uh, the sort of the reason actually why this has turned up now is the top risk that directors um, are concerned about. So this year, I think 50% of directors um, in the Australian Institute of Company Directors rated it as their top issue. And that's an increase from a pretty high 37% in 2022. And I think, as Chris says, some of the pretty high profile um, cyber attacks that have really occurred in Australia over the last six months, um, I think have brought this right to the forefront. And whilst it's still nascent and um, in terms of litigation risk, we now have seen quite a number of claims commenced and to start to sort of make their way through through the various um, forums. So I guess in terms of litigation risks, as Chris says, you've kind of got the consumer and securities class actions claims. You've then got regulatory scrutiny, which itself can lead to follow on class actions if they haven't already commenced. And then you've also got a species of commercial claims between companies and their service providers, because quite often these sort of breaches or um, vulnerabilities in cyber you know, systems and processes can not just involve the company itself, but third party service providers and, and quite where liability lies there. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the types of um, claims that have arisen, we'll, we'll come to that um, a bit further on in the podcast. Um, I think it's interesting that initially the focus was very much on the consumer type claim. And I think that litigation funders and plaintiff firms for a couple of years have been looking at that style of claim just because of the volume of, you know, plaintiffs that might be potentially impacted by a single event. So you could have thousands, millions of potential individuals um, whose data may be compromised in an event. And so that already provides a 
you know, an interesting sort of base for why these are potentially attractive to funders but and firms, but we'll come on to, again, some of the challenges that are faced in this space and why probably to date it's been a little bit nascent. Um, in terms of the securities class actions, um, those have really um, focused on alleged breaches of continuous disclosure obligations um, and particularly around um, failures to disclose what is said to have been sort of deficiencies in a company's cybersecurity posture before the event itself actually arose. Um, and then in terms of the regulatory overlay, um, there are a plethora of different regulators that kind of see this as relevant in different ways in this in this space. So you've got regulators like ASIC and APRA who are really looking at it as a board level issue um, and sort of scrutinising whether at that sort of very senior level, um, people are taking kind of cyber risk management and resilience seriously. And we've seen some um, significant kind of liquidity um, sort of impacts from, from a particular um, decision that APRA came to arising out of one of those cyber attacks last year. Um, and then you do have the Information Commissioner. So um, that's both a complaints handling body, but also an investigatory and enforcement body, um, which looks at compliance with the Privacy Act. And again, that's something where just given the public um, profile that this is now having, that sort of risk and the risk of the, the OIIC, the Information Commissioner taking action is, is sort of a more acute one nowadays. Um, so Chris, I guess trying to deep dive a bit more into the types of class actions that we've seen in Australia, given it's only really been in the last six months we've had the first securities class actions commenced um, off the back of cyber actions. Um, it'd be useful to hear a bit about um, from your very deep securities class action ex expertise, kind of what those claims are looking like and perhaps what some of those challenges are. Thanks, Chris. Um, it's it's really interesting for me personally, um, watching it from the perspective of the securities class action um, risks arising from cyber incidents. And in, in some respects, maybe perhaps a bit of a good, good news, good news being a bit relative, is it's it's not new. Right. So the, the content of the information, and, and I think you, you expressed it beautifully, is around this um, disclosure failure and, and um, representations are said to be, be misleading because of those deficiencies or alleged deficiencies in the corporate systems to detect, to protect, to avoid the cybersecurity incident in question. So in summary, it's an alleged failure to disclose a system or process deficiency within the corporation. And that is, of course, not new. So it's it's very much a classic risk-based or event-based event shareholder class action mould that's been utilised by class action promoters. And what's been really pushed through that mould is the cybersecurity subject matter. And we've talked about this in previous um, podcasts in the context of um, ESG in particular. So, for example, if I pick that as another um, high-risk area that corporates are, are focusing on, um, and, and what we've um, spoken about it a lot in a lot in this in, lot in, in this space, that if you are a listed entity, you really have this heightened risk of what might be termed a double whammy, where you have that exposure for, rising from the incident itself. And then you've got this kind of um, derivative um, uh, adjacent claim that is waiting in the wings, so to speak. Um, that 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 being the shareholder class action that will that will pick up this alleged failure to disclose the risk. Um, 
So it's it's very much what I'll say, a, a space to watch with interest. There's a number of shareholder class actions that have gone through to trial or at a very late stage that um, uh, are testing how these how that mould is going to be prosecuted because there's a real, you know, if you sit if you sit back, there's a real artificiality about that um, structure of the of the allegation, um, and there's inherent difficulties um, with those allegations, which probably make make a good topic for another podcast and probably will take a long time to deep dive on. But I guess the short point of of all of this is. As we as we have, um, I, I guess, as the risk of cyber incidents arise, and as we have more of those risks crystallising, I think it'll be very prudent for corporations to expect and plan for shareholder class actions arising out of those if they are a listed entity. So it's not a new per se um, risk area; it's just a new source of claims. And perhaps, so, Chris, I mean, just picking up on that, mm. in advising clients and boards, um, even on the question of quite often, you know, you, it's it's not just a data breach incident, but there's a ransomware component to some of these bigger ones as well. That is very much something that I think boards are trying to take into account in assessing that matrix or the, you know, the assessment of that pay, don't pay decision or quite how do we respond to this. They're very much alive to there's not just the immediate incident, but actually there's all these sort of ancillary risks down the track in terms of class actions and things that um, we need to take into account, you know, in the incident response stage as well. Yeah, the broader impact if you do it, if you take a step at this point in time, what that might mean later on. Um, but I think it's it's yeah, you know, it's it's really really interesting how it's sort of emerging in the securities class action um, space. But I suppose taking a step back, where it really starts is with the consumer class actions. That's where the I guess people have traditionally thought um, where those where these cyber incident claims might really um, be an emerging area for. And I was hoping, Brendan, perhaps you could talk a little bit about the, the consumer class action space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you've hit the nail on the head, Chris, that one of the reasons complexity arises in these cases is um, when a breach occurs, shareholders can be impacted, but other stakeholders like consumers are impacted as well. It tends to follow um, wherever the data's gone. Um, so often uh, in customer-facing businesses, uh, consumers have brought claims, um, and there have been a number of major cyber events in the last six to 12 months, which have triggered a number of consumer class actions. Um, that's not shareholders bringing a class action against the company, but um, usually customers or class actions commenced by individuals whose personal information has been compromised as a result of the breach. And it gives rise to complex claims and complex class actions because a number of areas of law get traversed in those types of claims. Often there's alleged breaches of contract with the consumers if the contracts had terms relating to the way in which data would be handled or kept private or secure and one can um, think of the long terms and conditions which apply to most internet apps these days, um, most of them have um, terms relating to data, data handling practices, um, alleged misleading or deceptive conduct under, for example, the Australian Consumer Law about representations that might have been made about 
a firm's IT systems and compliance with regulatory obligations. It's another area which we often see arise in these consumer class actions. And then there's um, breaches of equitable obligations of confidence and even breaches of duties of care owed to customers. Um, now, that's one of the things that makes these claims complex is there's various areas of law in the one claim. Um, one of the challenging aspects of consumer claims is um, establishing reliance, i.e. Uh, did um, a consumer in fact rely on those types of representations that were made to them in a contract, um, for example, or in some form of promotional material. Um, often those contracts are not read. I know I don't read um, the long terms and conditions when I'm downloading an app. Um, and another really challenging and an interesting area, which I think we'll see further develop in this space is loss. Um, what loss um, has arisen by reason of personal information um, being um, disseminated. Now, many of the claims to date have sought to recover um, non-economic loss, being distress, embar embarrassment um, and anxiety. And they can be, um, or there can be difficulties establishing a right to those types of losses. Um, but they obviously can be established. Um, and it arguably requires each individual to establish the particular nature of the damage that they've um, suffered or that's been caused to them. Um, now, the, the difficulty that um, um, firms face at the moment is none of these class actions have yet run through to trial or to judgment. Um, so, it's a bit of a watch this space to see how um, judges and courts will deal with those issues, um, but it will be um, an interesting space to watch, particularly, I think, on the, um, the loss aspect. Um, another interesting part of these class actions is, in addition to those losses being claimed, we've seen other forms of relief um, particularly mandatory injunctions, which would require companies to destroy or de-identify personal information that they hold about um, relevant customers or former customers. Um, and one can imagine that that would not be an easy exercise for a large firm with, with lots of um, data and indeed legacy systems. Um, so those are the types of issues, I suppose, and a bit of an overview of what we're seeing in the um, consumer class action space. Um, now, Christine, some of these issues are why some representative claims are being brought in a different forum to um, class action proceedings. Yeah, that's right, Brendan. And as Chris said at the outset, at the moment, actually, in Australia, you can't actually bring a direct claim in a court to sue for breaches of the Privacy Act. And that's the most obvious thing for a consumer usually when you've got a data breach, right? That there's been a, an unauthorised use or disclosure of your personal information. 
And so at the moment, you're funneled through this slightly odd system that I don't think anybody really knew about until the last, well, not broadly, until the last kind of 12 months. And that's that you can bring complaints for determination by the Information Commissioner where there's been an interference with your privacy. And there is a system in that um, forum where representative complaints can be brought, um, where there's multiple customers who have been affected by the same, in effect, underlying conduct. Um, and the sort of interesting thing about that forum, well, there's a couple of things that are unique about it, but one, one thing that does make it attractive is that a breach of Privacy Act obligations explicitly in the statute allows for remedies in the nature of non-economic losses. So some of the issues that you have in a traditional class action proceeding for breach of contract and things like that, where typically you're quite limited to economic losses um, in your recovery, don't arise there. And so the Information Commissioner has made awards previously for non-economic loss um, in a representative complaint setting. And that's been sort of up to $4,000 for people who have suffered things like just general anxiety or trepidation or concern or embarrassment as a result of a data breach, and all the way up to sort of $20,000 um, for conditions which have resulted in a referral to a mental health specialist. You can see how if you start to multiply even those numbers out across quite a large cohort of individuals, um, it can start to be quite significant. And so I think that flexibility and sort of compensation awarded is the reason why a number of traditional class action firms have started representative complaints um, with the Information Commissioner as a way to get recovery of those sorts of losses. On the flip side, though, there are a number of quite important hurdles which make that representative complaint process not so attractive. Um, so, for example, even if the Information Commissioner determines there's been a breach and awards compensation, those awards are not enforceable. So if a company determines that it doesn't wish to comply with the determination, um, it's then up to the complainants to um, commence proceedings in the federal court, which can effectively hear the matter afresh and determine what, what sort of compensation award should be made. Um, and sort of another quirk of that process is that legal costs aren't um, recoverable before the information commissioner. So quite often, again, um, class action firms are sort of looking for things to be fun, like, you know, there'll, there'll be sort of costs implications around this um, that are relevant and taken into account. So, yeah, you've kind of got these sort of interesting processes, neither of which I think completely ticks the boxes of your traditional class action firm um, and funder. And so, um, I think firms are looking now at both processes to sort of see which one um, ends up um, producing, I guess, the best outcome from them. Um, and that's also given rise to just a debate around whether class action firms should be permitted to commence a consumer class action and also have a representative complaint run in parallel, because in effect, it's trying to compensate the same group of underlying people. Um, at the moment, the judges in the federal court haven't shown a willingness to stay consumer class actions on account of a parallel representative complaint process being dealt with. Um, I think the courts are concerned about sort of practical resource limitations on the information commissioner, which means those complaint matters can be quite slow to be resolved, as well as the fact that the information commissioner doesn't have the full suite of powers as, as the federal court. So at the moment, I think you should expect if you're a company, 
exposed to those sorts of matters that, as Chris says, you sort of be subject to parallel things running in tandem almost. Um, sorry, Chris. I was, I was going to say, like, that. I mean, I think that that um, complexity with that class action style complaint system is, is really, really interesting and I suppose different um, uh, compared to other species of class action risks for, for corporates. Um, you know, we always, you, there's always that, um, I guess, classic regulatory investigation risk um, always present. And it, as you said, Christine, in your introduction, a lot of complexities because there's a lot of regulators who um, are interested in this space. So I was hoping, Brendan, you could um, dive that into that a little bit, a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, it's kind of complexity on complexity um, because we've got shareholder class actions, consumer class actions, um, the OAIC route, um, and then you've got a, a number of regulators and the regulatory matrix here is, is not at all simple. Um, and the spectre of a regulatory investigation um, is almost inevitable. Uh, in fact, in the current climate, I potentially go as far as to say that it will happen. <laughs> um, you will at least get probably a call from a regulator. Um, and those regulatory investigations, like other class actions, often um, proceed or travel alongside um, class actions associated with cyber events. Just to provide, I guess, a potted summary of the regulators involved, um, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner investigates, investigates breaches of the Privacy Act and can commence civil penalty proceedings for serious or repeat interferences with privacy. And in the latest budget, um, the OAIC got um, some additional funding um, to do that type of work. ASIC is the corporate reg regulator is interested in this space and indeed brought a, a prosecution in the federal court um, against a firm in, in relation to um, alleged deficiencies in cybersecurity systems. APRA, who's the prudential regulator, is interested in this as well. Um, for regulated entities, they have particular regulatory standards which interact with, or I suppose, um, set out requirements for um, cyber security standards. And then the, there's the competition and, and consumer regulator, the HCC, who's also um, heavily interested in this area and is particularly interested in I think large tech firms um, and particularly interested in the um, enforcement of the Australian consumer law um, and alleged misleading statements about data handling practices or uh, privacy policies. Um, now, the regulatory investigations in this space tend to fix upon whether an entity took reasonable steps to protect personal information which the entity holds from misuse and whether it implemented practices, procedures and systems to, for example, ensure compliance with the Australian privacy principles and whether it was necessary for the relevant entity to have collected and retained that information in the first place. And there has been, um, I think, a number of our listeners would have seen um, media about the, the amount of time that data can be held by P 
particular firms and whether that's really necessary um, or not. Um, and given these investigations often travel together with an already complex and novel class action, um, as I said, the, the complexity really becomes compounded and there is a need to have um, a number of work streams travelling along together and they need to be properly managed. Often you'll have a work stream managing the class action um, and a work stream managing the regulatory investigation and potentially engagement with a number of regulators just so there is coherence about key strategic decisions that need to be made across the proceedings and the regulatory investigations and engagement um, with regulators, including to minimise disruption to the business and distraction for management. Um, so that's just, I suppose, a, a potted summary of some of the issues that arise in the um, regulatory space. Um, Chris, I think it, this is not unique to Australia, and I, I thought you might be able to give just a, a bit of a quick overview of what's happening overseas in this space. Thanks, Brendan. I'll give a 10-second version because I'm mindful yeah. of the time, but it's it's you're right in that it's not um, unique to Australia. This is an issue that's facing many companies operating in different jurisdictions. Um, probably unsurprisingly for our listeners, the US is probably a bit more mature, the most mature market we've had we've, and we've seen data breach class actions in the US for more than a decade now. And so we were kind of, as, as someone who's um, uh, practising in the space, just waiting to see when the piggybacking was going to happen with the uh, with those with that trend being picked up by class action promoters um in Australia so it it look we're not we're not unique by any means but it's um it's still very much a, a rising area here in Australia and largely untested as you've said i think the thing that's really interesting out coming out of this discussion is there's real questions about efficiencies and whether all of this complexity is necessary um with that in mind, Christine, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what is happening. Is there going to be law reform in this space? I know there's been rumours about it, but um, it, I mean, it's taken a bit of time. It has. Yeah. So, I mean, for those who have an interest in privacy law, you'd be aware that there's been a suite of law reforms under debate, discussion, review for many years now. Um, and so I think the spate of uh, data breach issues that we've had in Australia has um, given, I think, more focus to those. Um, and so there's two kind of key, I guess, reforms that I think would address some of the challenges that plaintiff firms and funders have faced in this space. Um, and it sort of goes to some of those losses um, and, and what you might be able to recover. And so if these are implemented in the form that the Attorney General's Department is currently recommending, then that would materially, I think, increase class action risk and probably um, catalyze some of the piggybacking in a much more um, serious way th than what we've seen to date um, in terms of the US style claim. So the first one's the introduction of a direct right of action. So that would um, dismantle the current strange regime where you've got to go to the representative complaint process of the information commissioner and instead individuals could sue directly for breaches of the Privacy Act in the like in the normal way before a court. Um, 
so I think the current reforms would say um, complainants needing to seek leave first to bring proceedings directly to the federal court, but it expressly would contemplate that. And you'd expect that in those situations where probably the information commissioner appreciates that it's going to end up in a court, that that leave, you know, is likely to be granted. And sorry, and the court envisages that too, to ensure that there's not sort of a wasting of resources through multiple processes, really. Um, the second reform that, if passed, would um, drive an increase, I think, in class action risk is the introduction of a statutory tort for serious invasions of privacy. So, again, that would provide another cause of action um, and a clear cause of action in a cyber incident um, case. And because you have the introduction of a per se tort, again, you have things like sort of potentially nominal damages and, and the like, which makes it again easier to at least establish a baseline of recoverable loss across groups. Um, if the reform were again in, enacted in the form that's been proposed, it would potentially include a requirement that um, a company intended or was reckless in relation to the alleged invasion of privacy. So, Again, that sort of squarely puts into the spotlight for companies whether they've actually adequately managed foreseeable cyber risks um, in their systems and processes. I guess, Chris, given all that we've just discussed, um, what are some of the key takeaways for what companies should actually be doing? It's a good question, Christine. I think it's um, firstly, don't don't panic, um, and 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 secondly, I think. Um, I mean, having the right team around you sounds like it's going to be pretty important to manage all the complexities. So having the right set of skills in your team members, internal and external, to support you in the event of an incident, to support you in preparing a framework to, as best you can, or as reasonable as you can, um, avoid the cyber incident. So it's it's I think more so than any other space, it's really important to have a seamless joined up team of advisors on hand who could you know, inform you about the, the legal compliance issues, any gaps, any risks, um, just to minimise the prospects of the breach occurring in the first place and making sure the company's well positioned to respond and to respond quickly if a data breach does arise. So I think it's really great of... Um, um, well, I'm really pleased to be able to introduce our listeners to both you and um, Brendan, because you guys are the experts in this space. Um, the second thing, and probably more with my litigator hat on, is having a good paper trail. So we're seeing companies seeking proactive reviews and assessments to review the current state of um, state of play in terms of what the you know what what the company is currently doing and what the future state might look like, and having a, a, a program in place to move from current state to future state and 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 get the get the system um well well positioned thanks chris that's that's really helpful and i think one other um it wouldn't be a podcast on litigation risk without a point around privilege so um <laughs> one thing that does come up repeatedly again in the heat of the moment in responding to an incident like this is that there will be lots of communications and paper being created around the initial response and then the investigation of the issue. Um, and just a word of caution there, to really think through setting that up appropriately, because there will be challenges around establishing privilege um, around all the communications, of course, including investigation reports, given the multiple purposes that are likely to exist um, for those, those documents. So that's, again, something just to make sure that the company's turning its mind to. Um, it's a good point to move quickly, but move mindfully. Indeed. Yep. Indeed.
Well, thank you so much, Christine and, and Brendan. Was there any last remarks but before we wrap it up? I think we might have overstayed our time potentially. No, nothing from me. I think we could talk about this all day. But I think that's been really interesting. <laughs> and thanks for having us on your podcast. Yeah, thanks very no much. No worries. Anytime. So thank you, listeners. Um, hopefully you found that insightful. And if there's any questions that arise, please do feel free to, to reach out.